perfectionism is this horrible construct based in capitalism, based in colonialism, right? It's this thing to separate us and make us feel disempowered. And so once we overcome that, and then we realize like sort of the only way to a joyful life is through imperfection, then I think we can share that. I think we can genuinely share that. You're listening to the Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts, Mary and Emma Kingsley, the mother and daughter founder team of Lady Farmer. We're sowing seeds of slow living through our community platform, events, and online marketplace. We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now. The farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. Emma, you want to talk about some of the things we've been doing in the Almanac? and how we're about to wrap up the season and open up for another round of enrollment? Yeah, so ever since the spring equinox, we've been playing with the theme of cultivate. And we've done so much with it as a community. It's been really fun. Uh, In the beginning of spring, we had an almanac community gathering where we talked about seeds we'd like to plant for the season and things we'd like to cultivate over the next few months. And uh, we had some people starting books and writing practices and planting gardens and new habits and learning new skills. And we've cultivated probiotics with sourdough and kefir. We've cultivated gardens with the lasagna garden technique and vermiculture that's raising worms. Yeah, and we've talked about foraging and mending and we've even done some poetry writing And lately, we've been exploring a lot about natural dyeing with our indigo pop-up we had last week uh, in the marketplace. And now we have our June Slow Living Intensive coming up on June 19th on the eve of the summer solstice. And we're also going to be doing some natural dyeing there all together as a group. Yes, we're calling the intensive Celebrate the Sun. It's an afternoon of natural dyes, mindful movement, and meditation. And we're going to explore our connection with the seasons through a simple bundle dyeing activity, an overview of natural dyeing, and some mindful movement. Yeah, so we're really excited about this June Slow Living Intensive. You can register now. Registration is open for the event. And if you think you might be interested in attending, we encourage you to go ahead and register so you can get one of the free organic cotton bandanas that's been pre-treated and ready to be dyed during the class. We'll send it to you with your sign up um, as long as we have them in stock, which we have a limited amount. So if you're thinking about doing it, you definitely want a pre-treated bandana definitely sign up by June 9th. Uh, June 9th is already next week. How is that? That's so crazy. I know. And we should mention that the Almanac enrollment is opening up next week as well. 
that's when you'll be able to sign on for all of the great content, the benefits, and of course, the wonderful slow living community that we've got growing over there. Yes, we can't wait for you to join us. Um, so all of this brings us around to today's episode with Katrina Rodebaugh. It's such a special one. Uh, Katrina is an artist, a writer, and a teacher who works at the intersection of fiber arts, slow fashion, and sustainability. She writes books, designs, and makes goods for her online shop, and she teaches mending and slow fashion both on and offline. We had the delightful privilege of meeting Katrina a few summers ago at a slow fashion conference in Maine which was awesome. And we took a really fun mending class with her. I can remember sitting with this group of kindred spirits. It was so lovely learning beautiful stitches that would transform our most beloved but worn garments. We were chatting and laughing and enjoying each other's company immensely. And all of this was just a few steps from the beach. It was slow living at its finest. Definitely. Katrina is so wonderful just to be around. And I just enjoyed this conversation so much. So, so without further ado, let's turn it over to Katrina. I like to start with being an environmental studies major in college because I feel like that really sort of laid the pathway for my passion with sustainability. Um, you know, this is 20 years ago. And then I went to work in the arts. So I think a big part of my story is sort of having that love for the land and for the planet um, at a pretty young age. Did you like grow up in an environment where you were outside a lot? And what was that like for you yes. as a child? I did. Yeah. You know, it's, it's kind of hilarious because I grew up in a setting that's not so dissimilar from how I'm raising my kids. Although there was like 20 years in between of like <laughs> a very different life, but um, yeah, I grew up on two acres in a small town in um, Western New York and we had a garden and we had chickens and um, you know, we lived a very rural life and then I went to college and then I moved to San Francisco and I lived there for three years. And then I moved to Brooklyn, New York for three years. And then I moved back to Oakland, California for 10 years. So then there was 16 years of living in very small apartments in very large cities um, and working in the arts. And um, I got married and had two babies and was living in a one bedroom apartment in Oakland. And I feel like I sort of waved my white flag of surrender. I was like, <laughs> I can't anymore. Uh, and we couldn't afford to buy in the Bay Area. We couldn't afford to buy anywhere in the Bay Area. So we came back to New York. My in-laws are just an hour and a half north of us. And my mom and brother and sister are four hours west of us. So we bought this old farmhouse in a very rural place on an acre of land and um, decided to try to make it work. So that's where we've been now for almost six years. Oh, that sounds so dreamy. You've really lived the life that I feel like a lot of people really um, kind of dream about. <laughs> yes. You know, it's funny. I dreamt about it for 16 years as well. I just really wanted more space for gardening. That was one of the hardest things for me in living in these tiny apartments, even when we mm -hmm. had shared yards. I mean, we had this tiny yard. I don't even know how, maybe it was like 400 square feet for three of us to share. Right. So I had like one garden bed and we always did a really good job with urban gardening. My husband got really interested in like biointensive gardening and like, how could we get more out of just like one or two beds? 
Um, but I just miss that sense of space and that sense of connection to the land, which of course you can get in parks and things like that. But I wanted more room where I could experiment with growing plants that didn't have to like have a great yield, you know, where Mm -hmm. I could have dye plants or I can grow herbs or things that I was just starting to work with. I feel like the relationship with plants, it really is a relationship, right? Like you, you, you're Mm -hmm. building this really, you're getting to know them. You're getting to understand what they need. You sort of have this like non-spoken way of communicating. And I've always felt a lot of pressure to like make it work in these tiny spaces. So we do, I mean, we're, I definitely feel incredibly privileged to be, to own a home finally, and to have this acre of land. Although as first time home owners, we could have started with an easier project. (laughs) Uh, We live in an 1820s farmhouse that needed a lot of repair when we moved in and we've been doing it all ourselves with the two children in tow. And um, I feel like I'm just making peace with parts of it. Like our house still has a dirt floor in the basement and like there's cracks in the subfloor. Certain windows don't open because they're just like decorative on the front of the house. Um, you know, and things that like, you don't think about like chasing all the groundhogs out of your garden, but yeah, there's parts of it that are also really dreamy for sure. That's really similar to our story. Um, but mine came much later in life. Yeah. It was what you described is the exact same thing. Um, we lived lived in apartments, suburbs here in, in, in Washington, DC, wonderful, lots of walking, go to the parks, Mm -hmm. go down to the river, all of that. But I just wanted a little bit of space, as you say, to ex- experiment. Mm-hmm. And so now we have that at our farm with our 1820s farmhouse. Yeah. Constant reconstruction yes. for a couple of years now. <laughs> um, but I call it my playground uh-huh. um, just to get out there. And sometimes it's a huge mess, you know, with like so experiments aren't going so well. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I'm really happy with, wow, I like that spot. And uh, you know, this, this little patch went well, but it's really fun. I, I, I kind of treat it like a big painting because I was telling my husband the other day in the spring, you have to get out there and, um, you have to imagine what things are going to look like, how they're going to grow and their colors and their size. Yes. Yes. And to place things. And, you know, he'll say, Oh, let me help you plant today. And I, it's something I have to do myself. Cause I just, I kind of stand around a lot mm-hmm. staring at it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I have a kind of a similar and dissimilar experience. My children really love being involved in the gardening. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I have a dear friend who's an incredible, um, florist and also sort of like a garden designer and not officially a landscape designer, but just has an incredible way with plants and, and designing. And we were talking about like at my house, it, I kind of just had to go with like a rainbow palette because like one yeah. of the kids will really want this like red petunia <laughs> or like, <laughs> and the rest of that area is mostly white, you know, or whatever. So <laughs> I've had to just surrender. That's like yellow, purple, pink, red. Like it's just, it's the whole palette, um, which That's is also, it's, it's, I think like that's, a joy I've really found in gardening too, because the kids do want to be so involved. And anytime I go to a garden center or I'm like plotting out which seeds I'll start, they they really want to be involved. And so I decided to just surrender to that. I decided, okay, yeah. you know, we'll have a little bit of this growing next to a big tuft of this or whatever, just because it it brings them a lot of joy and it's a way to really like engage them in again, like that relationship with plants. So one day I'll have a very thoughtful palette, but for now. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And like, inevitably, you know, they'll pick the, the weird looking thing that you yes. absolutely would not have put there, but <laughs> yes, they, yes. that will be their plant. 
Yeah, and they yeah, will exactly. watch it. And oh, that's just so magical. And um, I will emphasize, though, as you've said, and we've said on here many times, you know, it's, it's really all about kind of personality and personal tendencies. But we personally know people that have taken very small plat plots of land Mm -hmm. and done, you know, amazing things. So, you know, a person's not limited by their lot size. We, we talk about that all the time. In fact, I'm going to um, an open house on Saturday. Our friends, uh, Nikki and Dave Shouter, are opening up their townhouse, little teeny weeny townhouse lot where they grow hundreds of pounds of food every year. We They do a lot of vertical gardening and yes, um, yes. there's just so much potential. I mean, just it's just really the, the uh, possibilities are endless. Whatever space you have. Yeah. It's true. That is true. And I think, you know, another thing, another trick for us was like as renters, we didn't always feel like we could create the infrastructure that we wanted. But even in those spaces, I mean, when we lived in Brooklyn, I we had a pumpkin growing in our kitchen window. Yeah. Like I still don't know how we pulled that off, but we did. And you know, we had this stoop full of herbs and we had window boxes and things. And then in Oakland, we always had a little more space. Like I said, we'd have like maybe one or two garden beds. But you do, you really learn you know, what, you, what grows there, what you want to grow there. And then I did a lot more foraging then, yes. right? Because I could like go to the parks and collect eye plants. And we were always hiking through the parks or taking the kids to the parks. And so that's also really a wonderful relationship because you get a sense of like the seasonality of color, right? Oh, and yes. where you can forage color. Yeah. And I'm, I'm a big believer that whether you're in an urban or a suburban or a rural environment, I mean, obviously there's blessings and burdens to both, right? But you can connect to the landscape. You can connect to the plants. You can connect to the sky and the moon and the stars, right? Um, no matter how much land you have access to. And then again, in urban spaces, right? There's farmer's markets and there's still local farms coming into those, into those centers. Um, and there's great classes and shops and, you know, things like that, that you have access to that we don't hear. Tell us about your books. You're now yeah, saying, and your your mending your yes, mending journey. Uh, they're both so wonderful. Tell us about them. Well, thank you. Yes, I feel like the like relationship to plants and to space is also something <laughs> that's really um, like grown through this project. So I started Make Thrift Mend in August 2013. It was just four months after the Rana Plaza factory collapsed in Dhaka, Bangladesh. Um, and when the factory collapsed that April, I, it was really just like this huge wake up call for me. Um, I had been an environmental studies major in college and then I'd worked for these amazing arts organizations and I felt like sustainability was like a personal choice, right? It was like thinking about the food I brought into the house, wearing secondhand clothes, um, you know, when I was pregnant, thinking more about like the materials of the things I was bringing into our home. But again, like I said, we are renters. So I wasn't necessarily thinking about like energy efficiency in terms of, you know, uh, appliances or things like that because I didn't own them. And so I would also, you know, in my offices, try to create like more recycling programs and things like that. But when the Rana Plaza factory collapsed, which as you know, is just a structural failure, right? I think sometimes there's this misconception that um, like I had someone say once that it was a fire and like, no, it was yeah. the building collapsed yeah. from mm -hmm. lack of maintenance and cracked. it cracked and it, yeah. And, you know, like over 1100 people were killed and 2,500 were, were injured. And that was this moment to me where I realized that like in thinking about sustainability, there's this triad of basic human needs, right? It's like food, clothing, and shelter. And there was so much attention to food, particularly in the Bay area where you had this sort of slow food movement and um, you know, all this sort of attention to food. And then there's the shelter, which 
depending on if you own or rent, is maybe both the structure you're living in or what you're bringing inside of that structure, which there was some attention around that. But at the time, there wasn't actually that much attention around clothing and around like sustainable choices in fashion. Certainly, there were some people who were already doing that, but it wasn't the conversation that it is now nor were, was there like access to the designers and the, you know, there was no secondhand online clothing platform outside of eBay or maybe something on Etsy. So a lot of that has come in the last eight years. And for me, that was sort of this moment of realizing that I had kind of overlooked fashion in my sustainable journey. And so I started this project, Make Thrift Mend. And for one year, I was not going to buy any new clothes. And instead I was going to make simple garments again, which is something I had done in college to make extra money. And then I was going to buy secondhand if I needed it and mend what I already owned. And I really thought it was just going to be a one-year art project. Um, and that would sort of like reset me to, to better consider fashion. And then, you know, that was eight years ago. And so each year I've sort of changed the parameters of the fast um, until when my when I started writing this book, Make Thrift Mend, two years ago. So that was year six of the fast. And I realized that I didn't need to call it a fast anymore because it was just a way of life right mm -hmm. um that was really what kind of set me on this on this journey um and then so for that first year I, that's how it went I didn't buy any new clothing and then I was standing at a friend's uh craft booth like her craft fair booth and she had these beautiful handmade dresses and I realized that I couldn't buy one because of my fast and in no way did I ever mean to like boycott like independent makers or like handmade objects um and I had a stint of doing a lot of craft fairs myself before this project so the next year I added in that I would buy new clothing if it was handmade made. Um, and then the next year that I would buy new clothing, if it was like, quote, sustainably made. So at the time I was looking at like organic fibers or um, recycled fibers. Um, and then I think the next year I went back to locally made. And then I think it was either the fourth or fifth year of the fast that I decided I would turn to my studio supplies and materials. And that was one of the hardest because, you know, looking at like where the threads come from, not just their content, but like where the threads come from or, you know, any of the spool thread that you'd use for sewing machine, like that is almost always has a synthetic blend or comes on a plastic spool. And I never had the goal of being zero waste um, because I always wanted the work, once I started teaching, I wanted the work to feel accessible to the largest amount of people. And through my classes and you know, through social media, I would kind of get an understanding of what people were struggling with, what questions they had. And that was always a moment for me to kind of pause and reconsider it from a different point of view, like reconsider sustainable fashion from a different point of view. Um, so I, I wasn't aiming to be zero waste, but I was aiming to be low waste in my studio. And at that time we had moved from Oakland to the Hudson Valley. So we'd moved to a very rural place. So local supporting local shops wasn't really an option at the time because there isn't a independent fiber or fabric store anywhere around me. There are yarn shops, um, but not for, you know, not for woven fabric. The bigger summary of it all is realizing that there's no perfect, right? It's just, right. it's just about progression. And also realizing that it's like this matrix, sustainable fashion, or even sustainable living, that's going to look different for everyone. Because let's say there's like 10 points you're trying to hit. And, you know, maybe one is biodegradable materials, or one is local production. One is maybe supporting, um, you know, BIPOC or LGBTQ businesses, low waste, zero waste, creating 
circularity, like whatever those are to you, you're going to rank them differently based on your own values and your own needs around like your aesthetic, your profession, your economics, your geography, right? Where I could shop when I lived in Oakland is very different. Which businesses I could just walk in the door and support without any packaging or shipping is very different than where I can here. But here I can have a relationship to like local fiber farms that are within 20 miles of me and a local fiber mill, um, you know, for wool production. So yeah, I think it's just like really taking the individual into consideration. And, and for me too, as my family has grown and as I've, as I've changed locations, looking at that specific circumstance for the opportunities for sustainability and, um, and, and connection. I really appreciate, you just articulated all of that so well. And I have found, um, at least in our experience, that's actually a, a really tricky thing to communicate um, mm. <laughs> you seem very well practiced in it. I'm wondering mm. if you like how, what your experience has been in really formulating that very articulate, like elevator pitch almost that you just gave a brown. I, I, the word that keeps coming to me is accessibility. And I think that's mm-hmm. something about sustainability it can be really triggering for a lot of people because mm-hmm. it can seem and is in many ways inaccessible for many. Um, and mm-hmm. I think there can be uh, a sense of you know, pointing fingers and saying, you should buy this, you shouldn't buy that. And uh, what has been your experience around coming to that, to that idea of this matrix uh, that you so beautifully put and your experience in communicating the distance between accessibility and sustainability? Well, I think a couple things. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is one of my dear friends in high school, her mother used to say to us, don't should on yourselves. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And like, I just, as a young person, I was like, oh my gosh, that is such a great phrase. And so I think that's something that I, I still think about so much, you know, I still like, thank you, Barb, for that statement being in my, <laughs> being in my young brain for so many years. Also, you know, so when I worked in Oakland and Brooklyn and San Francisco, I worked in these nonprofit community art spaces. So galleries, theaters, art programs that are, you know, that are grant funded and always under-resourced and full of incredible humans running them. Mm-hmm. And they raised me in terms of like my business practices and my ethics. I mean, that's where I got my like on the ground training and what it meant to be an artist and what it meant to be in community. And these spaces were just so rich with like philosophy, like community-based philosophy and very diverse in terms of the people working there, um, in terms of race, in terms of um, sexual orientation, in terms of gender. And so I feel like I kind of came into sustainable fashion. Well, I didn't kind of come in. I came into sustainable fashion really being rooted in this nonprofit community-based philosophy and had some really great mentors around that. And so I think for me, I, I mentioned that because it wasn't just that first year of the fast was just about me. It was supposed to be a personal project, but the minute that I turned to teaching and that I turned to more like community-based events, it was no longer just about me, right? It was Mm -hmm. about the other people being in that space with me. And they didn't, they didn't all look like me. They didn't all have lifestyles like mine. Um, And also being an artist, Yes, I have a lot of privilege in terms of, you know, being educated and um, coming from a middle-class background and things like that. But my husband and I are both artists and there were, there were some really hard financial years for us um, as artists. And we had to be very resourceful sometimes (laughs) to make, Mm -hmm. to make ends meet. 
So I think that I've kind of, I think maybe I've had a, a perspective and also living in rural spaces and living in urban spaces, living in tiny apartments um, and now living in this big old farmhouse. I think those perspectives for me have allowed me um, to experience different things. It would, it would be different if I had always lived in this big old farmhouse, right? Mm-hmm. In a rural space, but I haven't. Mm-hmm. And also through my students, I think like they have taught me so much, particularly in the first few years where I was teaching. So I was doing a lot of teaching. Anytime there was like a challenge for them, I kind of just tried to I tried to just think of it from their point of view. I tried to think like, oh, right. I I can remember specifically this woman in a class that I taught talking about like how her husband was a corporate lawyer. And so she didn't know how to approach sustainability for him. I mean, Mm -hmm. not that that was her work, but you know what I mean? She was Mm -hmm. trying to be thoughtful about fashion in her family and the whole class of people very, like from very different backgrounds, very different interests. We all turned to solving this for her, Mm -hmm. like in, in that class setting. And, you know, one thing they had was they had the privilege of wealth. And so one thing that the class came around to was that like he could actually support an independent designer in like a bespoke suit for him, right? To wear to work, or he could support some of these smaller, you know, very expensive brands in finding the thing that really worked for him. Um, And I saw the light go off for her in terms of like, oh, okay, yeah, there is an opportunity here. You know, and then on the other side, you know, talking about secondhand clothing and that secondhand clothing isn't available to everyone because of the sizes, right? Mm -hmm. And if you're like, you know, I, again, like have the privilege to walk into most thrift stores and find something that will fit with for me because I'm in that kind of range of sizes, but that's not the case for everyone. Um, I have a friend who's six, four and like, she can hardly find anything when she walks into a thrift mm-hmm. store. Right. So that was also a moment for me where I thought, okay, wait, how can we think about this differently? This isn't available to everyone. Mm-hmm. And then, and then even just thinking of aesthetic or gender, I mean, how many like linen shirts, button down shirts and, and like uh, tank dresses, can you find in thrift stores a bunch, but what Mm -hmm. if that's not what you want to wear? Right. (laughs) Yeah. I think like with each time I just sort of realized, I just had to kind of bring it back to me. I had to bring it back to like, this is what works for me because of these seven reasons in my life. Mm -hmm. Um, And also seeing like how my husband and my children and I, it was different for each of us too, because for my kids, I didn't have the budget to buy those like beautiful organic kids clothes that I was like probably coveting, but I could go to the thrift store and I could find, you know, like I could find clothing for them in, in great condition. And I did have friends who would mail me things and bring me things that their kids didn't wear anymore. So for the kids, I actually pretty soon into the journey, um, realized that like they were going to have more synthetics in their wardrobe than I did because I could go into, uh, just like your, and these are like basic thrift stores I have up here in the Hudson Valley. This is like just the big thrift stores uncurated. It's just, mm-hmm. you know, versus like the consignment shops or resale shops that you'll have in cities that someone's curated what's in that space. So I can walk into like a big general thrift store and I can look at like the size sixes, you know, for my little one. And a lot of those t-shirts are going to actually be cotton poly blends. And sure, I can look for the ones that are just cotton. But I realized at some point it was more important that I was supporting the thrift store, that I was buying secondhand clothing. He was only going to wear them for three months or whatever until he outgrew that, you know, that season mm-hmm. size of clothing. And then, you know, that was okay. Like we, I think we have yeah. to find solutions. It has to be okay. We yeah. can't always just be coming up with like, one more reason why that's like not good enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
for ourselves. And I think totally. that, I think that when we really believe that, then we can share that. I think that we like so many of us have to, I am definitely a reformed perfectionist because yeah. <laughs> and, right. And that's actually a really painful thing. Like you have to do a lot of work to overcome that. Mm-hmm. And so I think once you have, and you realize like, no, that's actually like perfectionism is this horrible construct based in capitalism, based in colonialism, Mm -hmm. right? It's this thing to separate us and make us feel disempowered. Mm -hmm. And so once we overcome that, and then we realize like sort of the only way to a joyful life is through imperfection. Yeah. And I think we can share that. I think we can genuinely share that with the people around us because we have to, I really believe we have to find joy and meaning in the work that we're doing. And a lot of that's going to be through accepting our limitations. I think the bottom line in in all this is a person simply turns their attention to um, the practice of trying to be more sustainable or trying to make that one decision that's even in that direction. If you begin even in the smallest way, that's good. You're you don't have to do it all. As we say, you don't you cannot check all the boxes. We cannot check all the boxes. There's, there's too many boxes. It's too complex. Um, it's too nuanced. Just even making one small decision about what you're going to buy or what you're going to wear. And don't worry so much about all the rest. And the example you give about the children's clothing, like, you know, you just said, okay, there's going to be some synthetics in this and maybe it's not ideal. But, you know, you're doing your part to keep those things out of the landfill, at least for a while. And like you said, you're supporting the thrift store and you're teaching your children about using secondhand things and how this can be beneficial. So there's so many entry points and you can enter with just one, just actually turning your attention to it is powerful. And I think the other part of that is, and it's affordable, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. And that's the other part. That's why I was doing it. And that's, again, what makes it more relatable to more parents. Mm -hmm. And so I think that like... And and again, that might be the top of the value system for some families. At times in my family, it certainly was, right? So I think that again, like re reassessing where those points are, you know, and then now if I do buy something new for the kids, I'll try to really prioritize that it is biodegradable or that it is a recycled synthetic or that it's a company that I support because I'm going to prioritize my dollars into that new thing, which is, which is only a portion of what I'm buying for them because I'm still buying mostly secondhand for them. And the other thing I want to say about ticking all the boxes, no, we can't tick all the boxes on one purchase, but I do try to look at like my whole wardrobe and see if I'm ticking all the boxes in my whole wardrobe. That's cool. Yes. Because like, sure, maybe, and again, most of my wardrobe is secondhand also, but like, I do have some handmade pieces or I do have some new pieces from, you know, small designers that I want to support. Um, or even in my making, like one of the reasons I've been teaching myself to knit is because I realized like that is the local fiber in my region. It's wool. Mm, And I know my fiber farmers, right? Like I could, there's a handful of them in the area who I know by first name. And so I want to support their business. I want to use that local fiber. I'm not a very good knitter, but like I'm learning. Right. And so Mm -hmm. I can like, I can start to build accessories and things like that, that would actually be from here that I could dye with plants from here versus the fabrics that I'm using are not, they're not coming from here 
a lot of times, you know, linen that I'm sewing with, that's not even coming from the US, right? Mm -hmm. So looking at that and then looking at where can I use secondhand fibers? Where can I deconstruct clothing that I already have? You know, where can I support BIPOC brands, LGBTQ business? Like, and again, maybe I'm not going to do that in every purchase, but I can do that over the course of my wardrobe. And I think that that's something to, or in our houses, right? And restoring an yeah. old farmhouse, I certainly can't tick all the boxes with each restoration, but maybe over the course of this restoring this house, we can. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, I think that affordability part has to always be part of the conversation because we want it to be more accessible to more people. And, mm-hmm. and that's always been this thing for me too, is, is like, I want, I want sustainable fashion. I want to get to the place where the definition can apply to anyone who wants to use that phrase, right? Yes, that it's not some special thing. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. Like it's the normal thing. Yeah. You just choose it. Like, you know, yeah. I have people in my life who wouldn't like, I'm thinking of, you know, parts of my family or like parts of my friends from early childhood in a very rural space, they wouldn't want to identify as environmentalists and that's fine. They don't have to, even though some of them are actually making really sustainable life choices. Right. But like anyone who wants to, anyone who wants to be part of that sustainable fashion movement, I want them to feel access and entry. Every time. Another thing I want to say before we leave this topic is that um, once you begin in that very smallest way, you go, you, you choose your entry point and you go in very quickly. And you said this earlier about your journey. Um, it, it becomes, it shifts from being the challenge. I'm going to challenge myself to do mm. this or make this decision. It shifts and it just becomes the way you do things and it grows. It kind of mushrooms. Yes, it does. And it does. The story of Lady Farmer is that way. You know, we, our entry point was closed and and we wanted to produce sustainable clothing. And we learned we learned very quickly about not being able to check all the boxes. Boy, did we try. We had to choose our priorities. And then it it just morphs into so much more than just clothes or just yeah. just the fabrics or it, it becomes everything, everything you use, all the products, all the um and to your point earlier about the food awareness piece was well underway for like a, a decade or so, you know, before you started. <laughs> we recognize this too. And here the clothing is the same thing. There's really, it's just such a parallel thing and raising awareness around that. Like, okay, guys, you've got it about the food and people are, are, are getting there on um, maybe having to pay a little more for organic food or growing it yourself um, or, you know, going going to your the farmer that you know down the road your csas and all that it applies so so naturally to the clothing as well absolutely the same principles the same thinking yeah absolutely and you know and again i think about like where i learned some of the very first most formative things about local food was through my mom and one of her best friends and all the canning that they did coming out of their garden. Yeah. And they didn't call it slow food. They did it because their moms did it. They did it because their grandmothers did it. They did it because we grew up in this rural agricultural place. Right. And mm-hmm. I think about that with fashion too. And that like, absolutely the slow food movement has paved the way for, for fashion in a lot of ways. Although I think in some, ha- in some ways it's different just because of like the scale of factory production, right. And, um, overseas production yes. and things like that. But I think that in terms of fiber, um, one of my most cherished possessions is my great grandmother's patchwork quilt that hangs on the back of one of the chairs in our living room. And it's actually one of the pictures in the beginning of make thrift mend. And, when I look at her quilts and she quilted on the side, she wasn't a professional quilter. She had 
um, she raised children and she had a small farm. And then she was also doing other random jobs like wallpapering people's houses and cooking for um, different spaces and, and caretaking. But when I look at those, you know, and she's a, a pretty proficient quilter. It's the fibers for me. I just love looking at the fibers and the feed sacks and, you know, the, the, like the cast offs and things like that. And then even seeing how her quilting progressed over her lifetime from the quilts that we still have. And I, and again, she wouldn't have called herself. She wouldn't have used the language even I use. She wouldn't have called that redesign or recycling or upcycling. Right. It was just the practical way that she sourced fiber to do what she loved to do, which was make these quilts in the after hours. And so again, I think I just try to be mindful of that and looking at cultures all over the world and how they all had these um, unique ways to repair clothing and to build clothing, right? Based on yeah. the fibers they had access to, the customs and cultures and aesthetic, religion, right? All the symbols, all of these things to that specific place. But it's actually something that we all shared because before fast fashion, the fiber itself had value, right? Like just, mm -hmm. just the woven fibers into fabric that had value that we wanted to preserve. And then you look at fast fashion, which arguably only happened in like the nineties or the early two thousands. And you see how much has changed in just like 20 or 30 years. It's mind blowing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Our departure from all these things you're describing has been so very recent. Yes. Just a generation or two. And what we're really doing, I mean, we think we're creating new, new trends and phases and movements and stuff, but really what we're doing is remembering. Yeah. yeah. Remem <laughs> remembering is a beautiful word. Remembering. Yes. And I like that better than like going back because there's some things I never want to go back to politically and socially ever. Right. Oh, that is so true. Like we, you know, we don't want to go back to <clears throat> you know, when the life cycle was 48 years. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to even go back to when I couldn't vote, which like the, yeah. this house that I lived in, the women yeah. that I live in, the women in this house couldn't vote when they built it. Like that blows my mind because where we vote is walking distance from our house. What also is mind blowing is even before that, like you said, 1820, our, my mom's <laughs> farmhouse too. That's pre-Civil War. I know. Exactly. That's right. Crazy. <laughs> It's like not that long ago. <laughs> no. So we, that's, I think that's something we have to be careful about. Cause that can be triggering about this whole idea of like going back and like, no, we're not uh -huh. going back. We're not going back in terms of like, uh, I'm not going back in terms of feminism or in terms mm -hmm. of um, civil rights, right. Movement or um, yeah, all these, all these incredible, this incredible progress that we've made. We don't actually want to go back on that, but remembering is a beautiful word because we do mm -hmm. want to remember what was so basic to us again, in terms of food, clothing, and shelter basic to all of us. Well, and what kind of was like intentionally, um, there was this intentional unlearning of those things with the, yeah. with the advent of like marketing and, you know, capitalism and convenience, the, the convenience and yes. plastic and all, you know, that's a whole other podcast rant we could all go on. And, <laughs> but it really was, un it was like, it was, this knowledge was almost like taken from us in a way, or we were convinced that we didn't need it anymore. Programmed out. Yeah. Yeah, probably very strategically programmed out, yeah. honestly, by like huge corporations we'll never get to speak with. But yeah, yeah, no, I think that's right. And then, you know, again, back to this conversation about access, um, I think too, then thinking about like who has access to what types of food or what types mm -hmm. of groceries or what types of markets, right? And and thinking about that and realizing that maybe that part of that was actually systemic or is systemic. Totally. Um, and so again, like how can we just look at wherever the person's circumstance is, whatever they have access to, making the best choices or even just making 
I mean, even the word best, right? Making the choices that are right for them mm-hmm. in what they what they have can access. Making mm-hmm. choices that are right for me within what I can access. I think that that's that's all we can do, really, and that's a lot. I mean, yeah, like you were powerful. saying. It's powerful. And again, just like making that one shift, right? Like Mm -hmm. making the one shift, making the one choice, like one day. And then the next day you make one more choice, right? Mm -hmm. And then then it builds from there. There's also something so empowering and and beautiful about, uh, I think like, I think of it as kind of creating your own luxury. That's how I've experienced it very personally. So Mm -hmm. just super specifically, um, we've recently had this little natural dye pop-up shop in our online store and we've bought some wholesale, beautiful, organic socks and bandanas and things. But also we had the thought, what if, you know, we find stuff at the thrift store and she can dye them. You talked about it in your book. So that's, that, that was fun. But what really struck me was you also found some really cute kid mm. stuff. And this is, I thought about this when you were talking about the mm-hmm. kid stuff, like really cute, like even nice brands, like a petite bateau or like, you know, um, Hannah Anderson, Hannah Anderson or something like cute, you know, and if you find them in a light color and then she's been dyeing them in indigo, if you have any, any ability, well, everyone can do natural dyes and like going, like taking something thrifted, making it, dipping it in an indigo vat, if you have one or however, bundle dyeing it, then the result of that is like, yes, it costs you time and like (laughs) a little bit of knowledge to do whatever it is you to it but to me that's like the ultimate luxury kids clothing item like I you know I I wouldn't um be surprised if I found an indigo dipped petit bateau you know kids tank top in a store for like 75 dollars or something I wouldn't buy it but um (laughs) but just like holding that that. I was like wow this is so cool anyways that story just just like I was just very struck and I, and I am always struck too, when I like make my own loaf of sourdough bread, like, wow, I would literally pay $12 for this at a wow. farmer's market. And it costs me, you know, a joyous afternoon and like a tiny bit of flour, water and salt. It's really, not only is it like you save money and you save the planet, whatever. I think it's a true, you create luxury for yourself and it, it's so satisfying and wonderful. I also think it's about elevating everyday objects or things that we might have considered cast off. And that's so much in the spirit of both your books, Katrina. Hmm. You've certainly been a, um, a big presence in that kind of revival of mending or renaissance of these, these um, making arts, so to speak. And I wonder if um, you could speak to the concept of mending as like a metaphor in our times, mm-hmm. um, as a practice and as a, a maybe not a solution, but a, a a healing modality or something. Can you speak to that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think two things, you know, what you said about um, dyeing secondhand clothing, that's actually why I included the thrift and dye section in um, Make Thrift Mend, because there's so many beautiful natural dye books already, right? And as an author and and as a sustainable maker, I try to think before I'm going to make a book or before I'm going to do a big project, like, does this already exist? Or like, mm-hmm. I don't want to replicate something that already exists. And one of the things for me in terms of the so there's three tutorial sections in Make Thrift Mend. There's the make section, which is making sustainably. So uh, sewing with patterns that already exist. I didn't make the patterns. Um, and thinking about patchwork, thinking about you know turning a vintage tablecloth into a top, and then also adding sentiment, because if we add sentiment, we add value, and then we're less likely to cast that off. So like stitching mm-hmm. sentiment into our clothing. But for the thrift and dye section, 
it's all based on secondhand garments and plant using plant dyes on secondhand garments, because in most of, if not all of the natural dye books that I have, the projects were focused on new white fibers. So it was yeah. like new white yarn or new white, uh, you know, linen or whatever. And that's great. And that's wonderful, but that wasn't what I was dying, right? What I was dying is light colored garments. And that's a different process than dyeing a new white thing. Right. Um, mm -hmm. and both are relevant. It's just, you know, kind of like looking at it from a different perspective. And then, yes, of course, the men's section, I think for men, mending for me is absolutely a metaphor for healing. It's a metaphor for self-acceptance. Um, it's a metaphor for embracing imperfection. It's also really technically um, accessible because you need a thread and a needle and a pair of scissors and you don't need a sewing machine. You don't even need the space for a sewing machine, right? And when I started all the hand mending um, was when my oldest son was quite young and still napping. And so it was something that I could do that was absolutely silent while he napped. And then mm. he would wake up at whatever time he would wake up and I could I could be interrupted and put it down and not feel like I had sort of uh, like lost my, lost my train of thought. Like for me, when I'm sewing garments based on a pattern with a sewing machine, I really, if I'm interrupted, it's really, it's, it's really jarring, right? Because like maybe I was halfway done pinning that seam or I just understood what the pattern directions were and I was about to do it. But if I'm interrupted when mending or when knitting or any kind of hand stitching, it's fine. I just tuck the needle in where I am. I put the thing down and I go do what I need to do. And it's portable, it's silent. And there's like such a low barrier of entry in terms of the tools. So I feel mm -hmm. like mending, it's, it's really... Um, there's so many metaphors around healing and around acceptance. It's also like fashion disruption, right? It's also like disrupting yeah. the fast fashion cycle that tells us that's broken, go buy something new. Of yeah. course, it would probably, it would definitely be cheaper in terms of like, if we actually thought of each hour we spend mending something as having a dollar value, of course, it would be cheaper to just buy new because we're going to spend hours and hours mending something by hand. But I, again, like go back to the jeans. A pair of jeans that really fit well, I mean, that's a really valuable garment in my wardrobe, right? Like regardless of how expensive it was to purchase it originally, a pair of well-fitted jeans, I think most people certainly like most women will agree that's a mm -hmm. really valuable thing. So yeah. if I have a pair of jeans that fit well, that I like, you know, it's worth mending to me because then I don't have to go through the process of finding another pair of jeans that fit well, which isn't an easy task for many of us. And so I can invest in the time to repair the thing. It's disrupting fashion that wants me to just throw those away or throw them into a, some kind of, maybe take them to the thrift store if they're in good condition to be used. No, I get to keep them and mend them mm -hmm. and wear them. And then there's also this like hierarchy, this like stacking of functions, I think it's called for like, um, uh, like what's the, what's the function that that new resource starts with? And then what's the function that it ends with? So if you think about like yardage of fabric, right? If yardage of fabric is turned into like a garment, particularly a garment that maybe doesn't have a lot of yardage waste. So it doesn't have a lot of waste in making the pattern. Maybe it's squares and rectangles. That's its first function. And then I can use the patches to like patch that garment. Right. And I mean, try to keep that as a garment because that's like its highest function in some ways. But then when it's done being a garment, it can kind of come down a step and it can be 
Um, maybe it could be large patches for like a shawl or something. Right. Right. And then when that's done, that can come down until it gets all the way down to just being patches for another project or being stuffing for like a pillow or a poof or something. And of course I can't do that with every single textile that comes through my house for a family of four. But if we adopt that thinking, that's something woodworkers think about a lot, right. Based on the cut of the wood, what's like the most valuable, um, product they can make. Maybe it's the beams to a house, right. Or like mm-hmm. the frame to a house versus like a wooden spoon. Right. Right. And so if we can think of that, that, that also really helped to shift my thinking in terms of like, just the value of the fiber, the value of the resource, not even adding in the human resource to like weave that fabric and cut that fabric, dye that fabric, ship that fabric. Um, so yeah, I think that there's so many metaphors in, in mending. And I think that that, I think that's also like life's work, right? I think yeah. that, that mending is really life's work. Katrina, what does the good dirt mean to you? Literally or metaphorically? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness. That's really hard. The first thing that comes to mind is like the dirt that you can grow plants out of, right? Is mm-hmm. like um, the soil that has enough health in it to um, sustain plants and to sustain other life. But I guess I'd like to think of that as that like any dirt could be turned into good dirt mm-hmm, <laughs> with, yeah. like, enough, yes. with enough knowledge and enough tending. Oh, yeah. yes. And in closing, Katrina, what would you like to leave our audience with about yourself and the work that you do? I mean, I think, you know, I often sort of close with the same thought, which is you touched on it earlier, just this sense of like, just one step at a time, one day at a time. Like I built this wardrobe over eight years and I had a background in the sustainability and I had a background in the arts. So I I wouldn't expect myself or anyone to overnight have a sustainable wardrobe. That's actually not sustainable because the clothes you already own are the most sustainable, right? So I think just that like one day at a time, one, one, one focus at a time and to really build sustainability over like a decade in your house and in your wardrobe and, and even in your food and your choices, because then it's embodied because then it's part of your ongoing practice as opposed to just being like one more consumer gesture, right? Like we want to get mm-hmm. to the place where it's embodied in our choices and to remember to like resist judgment and to like resist the purest thinking that there's one way to do it because there's not. There's there's so many ways to approach sustainability and sustainable fashion. I'd like to think there's an infinite number of ways for a hundred people. There's a hundred ways. Um, and to, you know, really hold on to that. Well said. Thank you so yeah, much. That's so wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. This is such a pleasure. Um, it makes me miss you in person. Maybe we can, maybe we'll cross paths again soon. Oh, I love that idea. It's so nice to speak with both of you. Thank you for having me. Okay. And where can people find you and your books and where can they follow you if, if they want more? Yeah, well, you can always go to my website, which is recently redesigned, which is kind of feels amazing after like 10 years of having a website that only half functioned. Yes, um, and we can relate. <laughs> and certainly I'm also on Instagram. And then um, my new book, Make Thrift Mend, is officially available anywhere books are sold. And I often have signed copies in my shop too. Lovely. It's wonderful. Thank you so much for our copy. We've loved flipping through it and it's really beautiful and you're such a beautiful writer. So thank you. Thank you very much. (laughs) Appreciate that. We hope you enjoyed this episode with Katrina. It was so wonderful to talk to her. She really articulates so much of what we talk about and learn about here at Lady Farmer. And if this is your first time meeting her, then you'll definitely want to explore her books, Mending Matters and Make Thrift Mend. Um, 
we'll put all of that in the show notes. And if you're new at Lady Farmer, welcome. We're here every Friday with the Good Dirt Podcast. And we are on Instagram and we have an online community called The Almanac. We'd love to have you join us there. Enrollment for the summer season opens next week, June 8th. Um, yeah, Mom, you want to remind them about the intensive? Yes. So we'd love for you to join us at our um, June intensive, June summer intensive called Celebrate the Sun. And we're going to be playing with color. We're going to be doing some mindful movements, some yoga, some breathing, relaxation, and we're going to be engaging together in a simple bundle dyeing activity. So we hope you'll come and you can sign up now. Please go ahead and sign up if you're interested because we have some organic cotton bandanas already pre-treated and ready for dyeing that you can use during class and we will give them out with the sign-ups we'll send it to you as long as they last so go ahead and do that and be sure and sign up by june 9th so that you have the best chance of receiving your bandana in time for the class so i hope to see you all there yeah and thank you so much for tuning into the good dirt uh we hope that you've been enjoying the show and we'll be back next week with another interview. Thank you so much. Goodbye, everybody. Thanks. you like listening to the good dirt i hope you do because you're here listening to it and are you looking for more good dirt in your life and a community of slow living enthusiasts to connect with all while supporting your favorite sustainable living podcast well we're so excited to offer the almanac it's our private slow living community network where we share workshops activities articles essays recipes and so much more that align with our community's sustainable slow seasonal way of living as a member you'll have access to information sharing and discussions on numerous topics of interest through online threads and frequent live virtual gatherings Members receive access to a virtual community of hundreds of other slow living enthusiasts, as well as Almanac exclusive events, workshops, recipes, playlists, online gatherings, and a book club. We offer seasonal activities and ongoing discussions on a variety of topics to guide you on your slow living journey. Also included is 10% off the Lady Farmer Marketplace year-round, numerous resources and more, and discounted Lady Farmer events, including... A slow living retreat. As a Good Dirt listener, we are excited to offer you 20% off your monthly membership and three months free, which is basically an entire season, if you sign up for the year. So go ahead and go to ladyfarmer.com slash community to sign up with this special offer just for Good Dirt listeners. Yay! That's ladyfarmer.com slash community to sign up for 20% off a monthly membership of the Almanac for three months free if you sign up for an entire year. That's ladyfarmer.com community.